Good evening. It is good to be here. Just feels like I was here just yesterday because I, you just reminded me how always you know how to welcome people. And uh, we just walked in here and got welcomed with food. We've been traveling around for the last eight weeks, and you can see that I've enjoyed the Canadian hospitality. It is awesome. Um, I'm here with my whole clan, and I'm going to ask them to stand. Gabby's okay, already up there. Uh, last time we came, we had uh, just two boys, Ezra and Gabriel over there. And today we come back with the third one, Josiah. So we pray that next time we come, uh, <laughs> I had to check with my wife and see her. <laughs> Just pray that she keeps that momentum. I like it. <laughs> so it is good uh, to be back here. We were here three years ago, and you guys have been part of the journey that we are on in Tanzania. And it's only good that we come back and share the stories and share what the Lord is doing because we believe that what God is doing in Mwanza, Tanzania is doing it because of all of us being part of it. If we were to write the story of Mwanza, Tanzania, the village of hope, you would be part of the character that will make that story. So we wanted to come back and say, see what the Lord has done through your faithfulness. And we are just but hands and vessels that God is using, and you are the power behind that. So it is a privilege that we can come back and share some of the stories with you. Uh, my name is Julius, and my wife, Jade, and as I mentioned, the boys are Ezra, who is eight years old, Gabriel, who is uh, five, and Josiah, who just turned one last week. Um, we'll share a few stories tonight, uh, but I, I, we thought that we'll just share a little clip that just captures uh, what we do and how we ended up to be doing what we do, and that we are going to share a few stories here and there so that you can get to know what God is doing in Mwanza, Tanzania. Uh, we tried the sound, it worked, so hopefully this time around it works. <laughs> we came originally to Tanzania as midtermers with PAOC, just to get our feet wet in missions work. We had very good connections to several parts of Africa, but something felt right about coming to Tanzania. So we came initially for one year in Dar es Salaam, which ended up being two years. We felt that God had started something cool in Tanzania. We were approached by the leadership of Village of Hope Mwanza and asked if we would potentially be interested in serving here. We had never been to Mwanza. I had never been to a Village of Hope. We decided to come visit and see it for ourselves. And we were here about four days and by the end of that trip, it was pretty much confirmed in our hearts. There was something special about being here. There was need, but there was a lot of attraction. We really got sold out by the uniqueness of Tanzania and the people that we serve with. I would describe Village of Hope as an organization that is child-focused, that reaches out to vulnerable children, and its aim is to make sure that all children are loved and cared for and valued. So we focus on five major programs. That's education. We want to ensure that every child gets quality-based education. We want to make sure that every child is healthcare is taken care of. 
We want to make sure that children have good nutrition. And we want to ensure that every child that we have a chance to serve sees Jesus, sees Christ, and is introduced to Christ, and they have a personal relationship with him. Major projects right now and where we're looking to grow, one would be an on-site clinic. Right now, we obviously cater for children's health care, but we have to go to outside hospitals and clinics. And ideally, we would love to be able to serve our VOH kids and staff, and then also eventually open it up to the community as an affordable option for quality health care. The other thing that we're trying to really utilize is our farmland. We have uh, over 70 acres of farmland. It could have a huge impact because we can grow a lot of the staple foods we need for our nutrition program. And then because we have so much land, it can also be a source of income. And then we also have a satellite site where we had a little bit of land, the area is called Bulale. So we're hoping to reach out to the most vulnerable in that community, kids who otherwise their parents might not send to school because of challenges at home or who are going to have to go super far to go to school. Who also are very poor or from a disadvantaged background where they're not getting proper nutrition and things like that. I think that Village of Hope values children to a point of realizing we can give the hope of Christ to even vulnerable children, that those same children can grow up and actually be contributing members of their society and be the change agents in their countries. Whatever you're able to give to kids, and, and they can really get a hold of it and run with it, I feel like the potential is just insane. I love being able to be part of bringing hope to kids here especially, and just helping them to realize that they do have an identity in Christ, that He has an amazing plan for their lives, and that it doesn't depend on their circumstances or their past situations. Looking back like 20 years ago in a very small village with no hopes, with no future, God found me. It took somebody to share the faith, and when I accepted that faith, it changed everything. And I would not want to be that person who is always feeling like, I wish I reached out more. So I just want to be available to God for this journey, saying, God, if you can help me, help one child. Feed them, give them education, but above all, introduce them to you. I will have done something as a contribution to the kingdom. And that's the whole reason why I'm doing what I do. Amen. Amen. It is good to know that the God we serve is a God who is the same everywhere. He's the same in the village. He's the same in the small towns. He's the same in the big cities. So it is awesome when I come back and find people who love Jesus right here, the same way we love Jesus in the village. That the God we serve is so gracious that whenever we go and find those who ascribe to the faith, we can tell that there is a difference and we serve a God who is a living God. So it's such a privilege that we can be able to share this evening with you. Thank you so much, Pastor Kyle, for making this possible. I must say, church, that you are 
incredibly blessed to have such a wonderful pastor. I'm getting to enjoy knowing him and getting to uh, enjoy his wisdom. He's uh, such a great guy to hang around with. I wish I, I was looking for a church I could have found this one. <laughs> um, we just wanted to share a few scriptures before, we, uh, before Jade comes up and share a few stories specific to Village of Hope. And I just wanted us to share a few uh, scriptures from the book of Job. I'm going to read from Job chapter 5, verse 8 to 16. And I'll not be going into the details of the teachings, but just looking at the truth of the scripture, what it just says. I'm not going to go into the backgrounds. Um, through my speaking, Pastor Kyle, I can understand that he's a great teacher. And uh, you can remind him to dig deep on that. This is what the Bible says. He, that's God, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain for the earth. He sends water on the countryside. The lowly sits on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon, they grow up as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts in his mouth. I love that last part. Injustice shuts in his mouth. We've named our talk tonight, Shutting the Mouth of Injustice. And I believe that that's exactly what God is calling all of us to do. Those of us who have, who call him our Lord, who call him our Savior, who say that I have decided to follow you. I think God is calling us and saying, I want you to be part of the solution of all the problems around you. I want you to be the light in the dark situations around you. I want you to find something to do because I am doing something. All you need to do is find what I'm doing and join me in doing that. And I believe, as the Bible has just reminded us, that God still does miracles. He performs wonders. He does things that we cannot understand. He does things that only he can do. And that's why we put all our faith in him. That's why we can entrust him with all our life. Not just a little bit. All of it because we know that he has the best interest, our best interest at heart. That everything he does is for our own benefit. And that's why we do what we do. We believe that God is still able, as he has always been, able to change situations that governments have not been able to change. He's able to do things that no human being has done. And that's why we don't want to give up. I know sometimes you hear of all the things that are going on, especially in Africa, and you wonder, how are these situations going to change? How is all these injustices, how are all these injustices, injustices going to be solved? I'm sure if you've watched anything about Africa, I can imagine all that you've heard of, it could be either Ebola, it could be war in Congo, it could be um, 
political unrest in, in Kenya, and all those things in Egypt and all that. But I want to tell you that God is doing something amazing, only that he's not making it to the news most of the time. God is doing great things and is changing generations. And that's why we are so excited to be part of that. We are so, so excited to be joined by people like you to be the hands that God is going to use to shut the mouth of injustice. We see pain, we see adversity, we see lots of suffering. But also on top of that, we see so much of God's grace. We see so much of God, God's joy. We see God intervening in situations in such a way that we see him in a different light. And that's what we want to share with you here tonight. At Village of Hope, we have dedicated ourselves to making sure that every child, especially children that are coming from vulnerable backgrounds, children who have been abused and abandoned, children who have lost their parents and they have nobody who is willing to take care of them, children who feel like they've had a bad beginning and they don't know how they're going to go on with life. We are there reminding them of the greatness of God to tell them that you might have started in the, in the, in, on the bad note. You might have started wrongly. You might have started painfully. But it doesn't have to end that way. That your beginning does not always equal to your ending. And it could be something that we can also be reminded of here tonight. Sometimes as human beings, we get stuck in thinking that our situation is always like the past has been. If you've had depression, you've had... Uh, bad relationships of you've had bad health, you feel like that's my situation. You've owned it and said, that's, oh, that's how it has always been and that's how it's always going to be. It should never be that way because God is able to intervene and is willing to intervene and he surely does intervene if we let him in. And when he intervenes, he changes things. I've seen it in my own life and it gives me so much passion and privilege to be able to do what I do, especially when I look back and see what the Lord has done in my own life. What God is able to do when you trust him with your life and give him everything that you've got, even if it is just broken pieces. He's able to take those broken pieces and make something so beautiful out of it. Those of you who were here three years ago, I shared a little bit about my story growing up in a small village in Kenya. And life was so difficult. Every day was full of abuse and hardship. Like even when there was no abuse, just surviving through the day was difficult because of where we were. Where I was born, there's no running water, there's no electricity, there's no road network. You know, there's, there, there, all the best things that you could say best here were not so best to me. And surviving through the day felt like a whole year to me. And on top of that, there was so much physical abuse. Going to school, you're beaten up and you don't know what you did. You know, you come back home, you're beaten up. And I grew up to be so angry with God and with everybody. But when I was 14 years old, one young man was brave enough to share the gospel with me. And I'm saying he was brave because I was not approachable. Even adults had given up on me. They were like, this one is a gone case. 
this one, don't even touch him. You know, I was so violent because that's the only way I could express what was the turmoil that was going inside me. But this young kid, 14 years old, from my grade 8 class, shared the gospel with me, and that changed everything. When I accepted Christ and said, God, I'm just going to give you my life and see what you can do with it. It has changed a lot. And I want to remind all the young people in the house today, it doesn't matter how old you are for God to use you. God can use you as young as you are or as old as you think you are. He can use you, whether you think you are charismatic or you think you are like, uh, like, like Moses who doesn't know how to talk. He can use you whichever way. You know why? Because he can even do it without you. All he wants you is the privilege of you being part of what he's doing. And today, I am where I am because a young person introduced me to Jesus. When a young person realizes that what they have, that the faith they have in Christ is so beautiful, they get to share the gospel. And that's what we do at Village of Hope. I'm just going to invite my wife up so that she can share a little bit about what Village of Hope does and share some very personal stories. Because at Village of Hope, even though we serve so many children, we look at every child as an individual, not just as a group, because we know that God has very special and unique stories with every individual. <laughs> My little helper is joining me. So we're, we're a bit stretched for time, so I'm going to um, just share one story and then invite Julius to close, and then we're going to um, answer some questions, hopefully. Um, so I'm just going to skip here if I can get it going. Oh, I'm going backwards. That's not good. There we go. Okay, so yeah, we definitely believe that God has a plan for um, every child, every life, and we're privileged to kind of watch that play out every day. Um, this is Paul. Now, this picture is very old. He is now 22 years old, actually, um, but he's grown up at Village of Hope. He's part of the children that uh, they were abandoned, didn't have anywhere else to live, and he grew up in one of our children's homes. And uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of struggle that comes with the, these kids that are either orphaned or abandoned. They don't, know, they don't know their beginning. You know, they don't know where they're from. Sometimes we can take advantage or take it for granted that we, we know our history, good, good or bad, we know our history. Um, and it's difficult to figure out who you are when you don't have that kind of piece at the beginning. Um, and so a lot of our kids struggle through that, and, and it's hard to walk through, them, through, them, uh, through that with them. But it's amazing to watch when they do really get a hold of the fact that God has a plan and a purpose for their lives um, and to watch them kind of transform and realize that for themselves. And that's what we've been so privileged to see in um, some of our graduates like Paul. So he's now 22. He's in his second year of university. He's studying to be a pharmacist. And we are still um, working with him. We have a youth empowerment program to... Uh, kind of help our, our grads continue life after transition to adulthood, post-secondary studies, all of that training. And so we're still walking with Paul. He's a really good-looking young man, as you can see. And, uh, but more than that, he's, he's just a blessing wherever he goes. He is involved in his community in the university. He's been elected to a leader, leadership position in his uh, student council. 
When he comes back on break, he's always willing to help. He'll get involved anywhere. He'll share his testimony at churches. He's such a role model for our younger kids um, because I think, you know, they look at Paul and they just see, like, tangible hope. Like, okay, I think I can make it because I can see. I know where Paul is from. I know where he grew up. I know his history. And I can see that God is doing something in his life. So maybe God can do that for me too. Um, and so we're so proud of kids like Paul and... Uh, I just, the sky's the limit. I can't imagine all that God will do through Paul's life. I'm just excited to sit back and watch and see uh, what he will do and the legacy that he will leave and how he will be able to change his community for the better uh, as he follows God's leading on his life. I'm just going to hand it back to Julius and he's going to close and then we'll answer some of your questions. Thank you very much. Um, doing the work that we do, you know, it's always good to see stories like the stories um, of Paul. And there's so many of those that we could share. But it always comes with a set of challenges. Being able to raise a child from a young age, especially the one, as Jade said, that doesn't know where they come from, it's always tricky. And I wanted to introduce you to Juma. Juma is 16 years old, and then the last few years, we've had so much trouble with him. And, uh, you know, running away, being violent, and we as a village have determined ourselves and been determined and say, we've said that we are never going to give up on any child. How can we? Because God has never given up on us. So we've said we will work with every child until we see something come out of it. And we've been working with Juma for the last couple of years, and last year something so beautiful happened. We have a church on site at Village of Hope that we planted a couple of years ago, and it's been helping us with the discipleship. And we bought a drum set. And that drum set became as a, a, an attraction and a point of connection with Juma. Like you could just come to church for that specific drum set. And after the service, you'll just sit there and you know, play, play around with it. And he, we didn't have anybody to teach him. But he had a connection. And he would just sit there for hours. And that's why I believe that God indeed does miracles because the Holy Spirit, I believe that, that taught him how to play drums. Three months, four months of playing, he started playing in the band. I just wanted to show you a little clip on what um, God can do when you give his life to, your life to him. People have told me that right now in our band, Juma is one of our most disciplined band member because he's there early, he's very helpful, he cleans up. At home, things have changed. The mother is like, what happened to Juma? And I just wanted to share a clip on uh, Juma playing after practicing by himself for about six months.
Amen. Indeed, God does miracles. I can't say that he had YouTube videos to watch because he has no internet. He just sat there and the Holy Spirit taught him. And we are sharing all these stories, as I said at the beginning, because these are your stories. We will not be able to be part of this without your generous support, without your prayers, without your encouragement. And we pray that God will continue giving us this unity as we serve him around the world, not only in Africa or just here in Lively, but everywhere where God gives you an opportunity to serve. Thank you so much, Kyle, for this opportunity. God bless you. Hey, don't go, don't go anywhere. Actually, do you want to grab one of those chairs for us? And uh, you know what? We're just so thankful that we have an opportunity. And I know that some of us may not have even been aware of uh, our partnership with the Kenya Minyars. But when you give, a portion of what you give, uh, our leadership designates how we use those funds, not only to kind of meet the needs of the building and pay the electric bill, but to be able to support people around the world and in our community that invite people to take steps closer to Jesus. And so we're excited to continue to do that with you guys. And also, if we want to give you an opportunity, perhaps God is asking you to give above and beyond your tithe. Uh, the Kenya Minyars did not ask us to do this, but I, I would like to give you that opportunity. If you want to connect with them afterwards, I know they've been more than happy to have that conversation with you, to, to give a one-time gift or a recurring gift. You can also give via e-transfer donations at cornerstonelively.com. And then in the memo, just write Kenya Minyaras. And I think you can spell that, right? Kenya Minyaras. <laughs> and we'll, we'll recognize any attempt that starts with a K, all right? And we'll be able to, uh, to make sure that that gets where it needs to go. But, um, you know, tonight is uh, Wrap Up Sunday, where we wrap up the series that we've done you know, we'd love to spend more time having these conversations. We realize it's close to the time that we would normally uh, uh, end up. And so perhaps afterwards we'll go on Facebook Live and, and talk through more of the questions afterwards. But we just couldn't turn down an opportunity to have them share uh, with us. Uh, it turns out the commute isn't something that you can just do any Sunday. And so, uh, and so we wanted to take this opportunity. So I've asked them to... Uh, to join me and to give a little bit of perspective. You know, we've said uh, more than once that we're not really, uh, you know, we're not saying that we have all the answers, but we want to have the conversation. And so over the course of the series, people have been able to drop in questions. Some of them have been specific to our series about near-death experiences, and some of them are a little bit more general. And so I've invited Julius and Jade to maybe give a little bit of feedback as well as we add answer or, or have a conversation about some of these questions. And I apologize ahead in advance that uh, there are more questions than we're able to answer. But again, we'll, we'll go on Facebook Live and we'll keep chatting about it uh, later on. And you, know, you don't have to stay, but it'd be a lovely if you did and we, can, uh, and we can do that together. So why don't we take a look at the first question, just jump right in here. It'll be up on the screen. My uh, PowerPoint guys, we're going to jump around a little bit here. But the first question that we got uh, was, I know you touched on it with a study from India. But could you say more about the experience of people with NDEs, as near-death experiences, who are Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist, etc.? So why don't we start by just kind of reminding and refreshing ourselves with that study that we took a look at. Uh, and so, Julius, this is uh, individuals who have had a clinical near-death experience, and because of you know, the miracles of modern medicine, they've been brought back to life, right? And, uh, and they talk about their experiences that they have, and there's a study done that says Indians, people from the nation of India, never experienced reincarnation and dissolution in Brahma, 
the formless aspect of God, which is the goal of Indian spiritual striving. But the concept of karma, accumulation and merits and demerits, uh, may have been vaguely suggested by reports of a white-robed man with a book of accounts. And so what we've been doing is we've been taking a look at these accounts and lining them up with what scripture says about them and allowing people the opportunity to uh, make a decision as to whether or not that leads us to Jesus and to faith, right? And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we want to talk about is the fact that near-death experiences are not limited to believers, and they're not limited to North America by any stretch of the imagination. So we did have a filter that we used in terms of what we would accept for, uh, you know, to use within our study and not use. Uh, just, so it needed to be something that was verifiable. It needed to be something that, uh, from a person who didn't have anything to gain from sharing their story, right? So somebody in financial need who perhaps would share their story and gets the next contract for 90 minutes in heaven, uh, you know, and it saves the day, uh, it doesn't mean that their experience isn't the real thing. It just means that we could question their motivation. And so if that was the case, we wouldn't take a look at that, right? And so I'll just share uh, two more with you. Uh, Sama is a Middle Eastern Muslim, now a Christian. She had a near-death experience after a church that she was in was bombed, and there were 11 people in that experience. Uh, 10 of them died, and she was resuscitated afterwards. And she says this. Uh, She said that it was as if Jesus were a brilliant diamond, his beauty dazzling and excellent. His splendor totally captivated me. All of my affection and my attention were focused on him. Everything else in heaven was like a precious stone, but its glory fading in beauty beside the beautiful diamond that reflected light from every angle. Now, there's a a story of a woman that is in the book, Imagine Heaven by Pastor Jonathan Burke, uh, about a Jewish woman. And she has a car accident, and she has a near-death experience. And she's told this story, and she says, on one hand... It's the most real experience she's ever had. She said it felt more real than anything else in her life. But on the other hand, she wrestles with it because she says, I'm Jewish and I don't believe in Jesus. Right? And so she tells the story of how she was in this car accident and she felt herself floating above the car. And there was a peace and a tranquility that she said that she had never felt before. She said it was to her right. And she looked to her right. And she saw a man. She said she knew that it was Jesus which was confusing for her because she says she still doesn't believe in Jesus. But she said she knew that it was him and that she had never felt so loved before. She had never felt that kind of affection and warmth, and she wanted to be with him. She said that he brought her to this well, and in the well they looked at uh, like an image that was horrific. She saw that there were tortured souls inside this, uh, you know, well in the water, and she knew that Jesus was giving her an opportunity to return. She had a choice. She could stay or not, but she knew Jesus didn't want her to stay because she would be one of the tortured souls in the well. So he's given her this opportunity to kind of repent and receive him, right? And so uh, after her near-death experience, she still says it's the most real experience of her life, yet... Um, yet she, she still struggles with it because she says, because I'm Jewish and I don't believe in Jesus, right? And so the, the point of, of this is that near-death experiences certainly are not limited to North America. They're certainly limited, not limited to Christians or non-Christians. We see them around the globe, around the world. And, uh, and there's also a research foundation called the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. And you can read all of these different uh, near-death experiences that people have. Um, 
Another filter that we had, Jade, was that we were looking at the most common elements in near-death experiences. And so, uh, you know, if there are a thousand, one person might say one thing, but if there was something that out of those 1,500 said it, we would take a look at what the 500 said, right? And see what the most common elements were. And so I hope that begins to kind of scratch that itch in terms of that. But, uh, but the point is that, that you can find uh, near-death experiences from people all over the world. I was reading them from Turkey, from France, from uh, Saudi Arabia today, uh, the, Canada, and, uh, uh, the United States are all over the world, and people who believe and people who don't believe. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Maybe I'll throw a question to you here uh, that's a little bit less specific to our series here. Uh, let's take a look at this one. Somebody asked the question, how can I forgive those in my heart who have hurt me? Um, forgiveness is probably one of the hardest things to do especially because it has so much emotions attached to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the effects uh, of whatever people do to you, sometimes you see them. I was in uh, Rwanda recently, and I met with people who are going through the forgiveness and the reconciliation program. And I could really never understand how they do that because I feel like I should never forgive anybody who killed my mother or my father. And these are the neighbors. But uh, you've probably heard about this before. Forgiveness is not for the other person. It is for you. Mm. So when you choose to forgive, you are actually freeing yourself and your spirit and allowing healing to take place. You are not doing the other person any favor at all. You are actually doing yourself a great favor. When you say, I can't change this. What has happened has happened. I'm never going to do anything that I can, I mean, there's nothing I can do to change the past, but I'm just going to let it go. And I think that's what forgiveness is. It's not really forgetting, it's not really making it right, it's just letting it go so that that space that has been covered, uh, filled with bitterness and resentment can be filled with healing and God's joy. Yeah, so good. Um, you know, I think we're going to be talking about this idea a little bit more in the fall. It's, it's clearly a bigger question than just two minutes, you know, on a Sunday evening. But we want to talk about this at a, a greater length. I did hear somebody say once, and I like this, that unforgiveness, refusing to forgive, is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. And, and uh, I think it's kind of a funny way to look at it. But, but I, I've also found, at least, it, like I can only speak from my experience, that forgiveness is, is a process, yeah. right? That, that there are moments where I feel like, man, I, I forgive that individual who's you know, offended me in some capacity, yeah. and then the next morning I have to wake up and I have to do it again, right? Yeah, I had someone also say that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're going to continue that conversation as we, uh, as we jump into the fall here. But, uh, but we want to talk about that. Let's do, uh, let's do one more. There's a, a number of questions that kind of all come together that, uh, that we kind of lump together. And so I hope it's okay that we're going to edit the question a little bit or many of the questions. Uh, it really, a lot of them had to do with how we relate to people in heaven, right? Like once we get there, will we recognize people, right? Like so if <clears throat> I recognize my grandfather as like an 85-year-old man, 
right? But his peers that he grew up with would not recognize him as an 85-year-old man, right? Like, most of his peers would have died in World War II, and, you know, like, the, the individuals that knew him as a child or as a teenager, would they recognize him, right? And then the other question that, one of the other questions that really kind of tied into this idea was, will we be in the prime of our life? Right, and so uh, it's one of those things. I kind of want to just say, I hope so. Yeah. Right, but uh, so we kind of broke it down into a couple different questions, and the first one was, uh, will we appear the same age as when we die? Right, and then the second one was, will we recognize each other in heaven? Right, and so like the first question there, uh, will we appear the same age as when we die? So that's the question, right? Like, will a child who dies at the age of six be six years old in heaven? Right? Or will my grandfather be 86 years old in heaven? Right? And so we don't really know, but this is a question that was actually like, it actually occupied the minds of Christian theologians for centuries. Particularly in the Middle Ages, this is something that people thought about uh, quite a bit. And there's a historian named Alistair McGrath, and he writes about this, and he said that by the late 13th century, the general consensus in the church was that as each person re reaches the peak of perfection around the age of 30, <laughs> I don't know why they're laughing, I don't know, uh, that they will be resurrected and they would have appeared uh, as they would at that age, even if they didn't live to that age. So if somebody died at, you know, eight, that they would still kind of, they would be in heaven as a 30-year-old person, right? Um, there's, a, there's a famous person that's recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church, St. Thomas Aquinas. And he said, he argued that everyone would be the same age as Jesus when he was crucified, right? So that everybody, regardless of when you died, you would be 33 years old in heaven, right? Uh, he said that human nature is deficient in a twofold manner. He said, in one way, because it's not yet obtained its ultimate perfection, and in another way, because it's already receded from its ultimate perfection. So what he's talking about is children haven't reached that age of quote-unquote perfection because they're still reliant on other people. Their bodies, their systems are still developing, right? Uh, and then at some point, age will kind of catch up with us, and it, it goes downhill the other way, right? Uh, there's a little bit of research that says, now I'm not a geneticist, I just read this, I don't know if it's true, but there are some people that believe that our DNA kind of develops and matures uh, somewhere in our 20s and 30s to the optimal functional point in our life, right? And so there's some conjecture that, you know, when you go to heaven, you'll be wherever that point is in your life, right? Like mid-20s or, or 30. I, I really hope that when I get to heaven, the first thing that God will do is just change my limited brain to start understanding the great things. And I hope yeah, it will happen. Yeah. Because I believe that when we resurrect and go to heaven, we will be glorified. You know, right. There will be a, a body change and we'll become glorified people. Yes. And, uh, you know, one of the questions I saw there is, uh, um, you know, people are worried that if I go to heaven and my loved ones, my children, my spouse goes to hell, how will I endure the sorrow? How can I enjoy heaven when I know that my children are perishing? In You know, it's very difficult to understand yeah. these things. Sure. You know, and... I believe that when we go to heaven, one of the very things that God will do is to help us to see things the way he sees them. Right now, we, we might see a little bit of how he sees, but it's so limited. Yeah. And when we try to understand all these things with, with the human understanding, mm -hmm. it becomes really, really tough to even right. put our minds around it. Right. So I believe that 
part of what God is going to do, he says in uh, um, Revelations 12, that the first thing he'll do is wipe away our tears. Yeah. Because I feel like they, they, there's so much we try to understand, there's so much we try to wrap around our minds around it, and it can't work. So right. when it wipes those tears, we'll be able to start seeing and feeling the way he's feeling, and especially the question of the loved ones. I, I can't imagine um, who loves people more than me. Who loves people more than God? God loves me. I don't know what I say. <laughs> Who loves people more than Jesus does? You know, I love my children so much. I love my wife so much, my, my parents. But I know that God loves them even greater than me. And it will hurt him to see them perish. But I think when we get to heaven, we'll be able to understand the extent of sin much better than we do right now. Sure, absolutely. And I, I think that's true what you say, Julius, about... Um, uh, about us having a greater understanding of things, you know, and we'll kind of we'll, we'll finish off maybe with that question, and, and we'll just we'll just tail off this at the end. But you're saying how how you know God will give us a greater understanding of these things, and and the truth is, some of these questions we don't have an answer. Like we don't know for sure. There's conjecture, right? You know, and and like this, all of this thought and, and effort that was put into answering this question so many hundreds of years ago. Uh, you know, like as I'm reading this, I think, well, that sounds nice. That I'll be in like the physical prime of my life, right? But, uh, but in terms of like biblically, I think every once in a while there's some issues that jump up, right? And so we've heard some near-death experiences where, that come from children, yeah. right? We've heard some near-death experiences where people witness children in their experience that they have. And, you know, if we read the book of Isaiah, there are biblical passages that talk about children being in heaven, right? And so... And so it, it's difficult for us to even kind of conclude an answer there. Like, part of it is, like, we don't really know, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the man who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, an atheist turned uh, believer, he wrote a book about heaven called The Great Divorce. And he suggests in that book that perhaps we will appear ageless. He says that no one in that company struck me as being of any particular age. One gets glimpses, even in our country, of that which is ageless, heavy thought in the face of an infant and frolic childhood in, the, uh, in that of a very old man. You know, there's somebody named Randy Alcorn who's probably one of the leading kind of thought, you know, uh, influencers when it comes to heaven and the afterlife, at least in Christian faith. Uh, and, he, and he talks about heaven and how he believes that we'll see one another with different eyes and different perspectives. Right? So perhaps I would recognize my family members, my grandparents that love the Lord, as what they would have appeared to me to be when I knew them. Right? But perhaps their peers would see them differently. And again, this is, you know, this is conjecture. But I think part of that question that we want to look at is, is just, will we recognize one another? And I heard it said, uh, shall we be greater fools in paradise than we are here? And, uh, and I think the answer was, of course not. And we see, like, every near-death experience that we've talked about has included this welcoming committee, has included, uh, you know, our recognition of people from our life that are around us, whether that's a good experience or a bad experience. And we see a little bit of scriptural foundation for that as well. There's a story in the uh, New Testament in the Gospels where Jesus goes up with some of the disciples to this event called uh, the Transfiguration. And what's incredible about this is that the disciples recognized two men that they had never met before, Elijah and Moses. And what's incredible about that is that they were not alive to see Elijah and Moses. 
and there wasn't Facebook, so they haven't seen their profile picture, right? Yet, so, so there's this idea that perhaps we're able to recognize people that we haven't even met before. And so kind of touches on that, that question of how will we see one another? Well, we're not entirely sure, other than the fact that we're confident that we will know one another and that we won't have less knowledge or, or less, uh, I feel like when we get to heaven, I'll always remember people's names. Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll see them in 3D or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 4D, more dimensions, right? Yeah. Okay. Why don't we just uh, we finish? Because I feel like we just touched on that that question about uh, about you know lost ones. You know, if our loved ones are in hell and we're in heaven, won't that spoil heaven? I feel like we just want to give that one or or two more minutes. Uh, you know, I read it was a new question for me. I thought it doesn't really occupy my headspace most of the time. Uh, wow, what a good question. Uh, and, and I read a few different theories, and I'll, I'll share some of them with you, and then we'll kind of take a look at what the Bible says and, and what's a little bit biblical. One idea kind of talks about how perhaps we won't have any recollection of individuals or any knowledge of hell, right, or those who are there, right? So that, you know, say my wife doesn't love the Lord, and we both die, and I go to a good place, and she doesn't that I would forget everything that had to do with my wife, right? Uh, I think the sentiment behind that is that heaven is full of joy, and there's no grief, and there's no sorrow, and there's no pain, right? And so it seems, at least on a human level, that if that's true, we would have to turn off a piece of us, right? Like the piece that loves one another, that's caring and compassionate. But I don't, I don't see that happening in Scripture. It relies upon ignorance. And what we see in Scripture, what we see in these experiences is actually you know, fuller knowledge, a fuller revelation, not, not less. And so how do we reconcile that? And I think, uh, you know, there's a theologian that has a hard answer, but it's actually, I think, a little bit more biblical. His name is J.I. Packer. I won't read the whole thing. But he says that, uh, that God's holy righteousness will uh, hereby be revealed. God will be doing the right thing, vindicating himself at last against all who have defied him. God will, just, uh, God will judge justly, and all of the angels, saints, and martyrs will praise him for it. So it seems inescapable that we shall, with them, uh, approve the judgment of persons, rebels, whom we have known and loved. You know, we read in the book of Revelation, uh, in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, God is talking about the wicked city of Babylon, and the people are told when they're cast into hell, Rejoice, O heaven, rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way that she treated you. You know, there's kind of this idea of, like, hell being a dark backdrop to heaven. And I think that's true, right? That, that absolutely. But, but I think what we need to take from this whole thing is that, uh, that hell has no power over heaven. And there's also a verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And I think what we're going to do when we get there is that we will marvel at God's patience shown to each of our loved ones. You know, I've got two kids. We were just on holidays. There were three other kids, four more adults, and a uh, rambunctious dog with us, all in one, uh, one in, in one camp. They say camp here, not cottage. And so I, it's a learning curve for me. And so we're all together in one cottage, uh, in one camp. And... Uh, and Sophie, my daughter, is seven years old. She is the oldest of five kids and a dog who does not like children, right? And so you can imagine that every once in a while, there was some 
some unpleasant discipline, perhaps, that needed to happen. And, uh, and my wife kept reminding me, you're doing a great job of creating memories for our children. You know, <laughs> you'll get rest when we go home, right? And so there are moments where I feel just like my humanness. And I'm not patient, right? Like, I'm not the image bearer of God that I've been created to be. And then I feel like my wife picks up the torch, right? And she's so patient with these kids that are driving me crazy. And I'm just marveling at how she can remain calm and patient for our children who just seem to, like, push the button over and over and over again. And I think about this verse uh, of how, how God is, is not slow in keeping his promise, that, that he is patient and wants everyone to come to repentance. I, I feel like we're going to have that moment like I had with my wife, Stephanie, <laughs> where, where we look and we see how patient God has been. And, you know, that verse that, uh, uh, that Julia shared, Revelation 21, 4, it's got to be one of my favorites. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. And so it's a hard question. But one thing I think that we know for sure is that hell will have no power over heaven. And that our Father is our comforter, and that we will be right there with him experiencing joy. Yeah? Yeah? The same page? All right. Good. All right. Guys, we've gone over time, and, uh, and I want to thank you for your patience tonight. Man, we didn't want to rush this, and there are a few more, and so we will do, uh, we will do the rest. We will do some more, but we'll do it Facebook Live, and you can... Uh, Follow along, whether you do it live or, uh, or watch it later, then share it, uh, and we'll keep going, and we'll answer your questions. Uh, but I do want to ask before you go, tomorrow is Camp Cornerstone. It's the beginning of Camp Cornerstone. Uh, there are 38 kids signed up for Camp Cornerstone. It's going to be amazing. So pray for our team that is with those kids and, uh, and leading them. And also, as you leave tonight, would you be willing to just stay for one more minute and help us move a couple chairs from this room into the nursery? Uh, just beside on the other side of the hallway. Uh, many hands make light work, and it's going to be amazing.